Hi, I'm Richard, the founder of 10 Adventures, and this is the 10 Adventures podcast. Each week, we talk to real people about real adventures as they explore this incredible planet we all live on. Welcome back to the 10 Adventures podcast. Have you ever wanted to try and walk across an entire country? That's exactly what Tomas Corua did, walking the 800-kilometer length of Portugal over 35 days. If you've been to Portugal, then you know of the beauty and diversity of the country. So I'm excited to hear more about his incredible journey. Tomas, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Richard. I'm happy to be here. So the first thing that that I wonder is, you're, you're from Portugal, but what led you to decide to walk from the south, southern tip to the northern tip? Exactly. That's the big question, right? So I am from Portugal and I am from, a, let's say, a rural area. And I've always been in touch with the outdoors. So since I was a kid, you know, camping was part of something that we did. Playing outside was part of something that we did. And there was this constant, let's say, uh, I felt drawn to nature since I was young. But many people are, right? From that place of being attracted to the outdoors and nature to walking the, the length of a country is still quite something else. Then as I grew older, I remember the fantasy starting to form. I used to take the train from uh, Beja, my original city, to Lisbon. Uh, when I started studying, I moved to Lisbon. And sometimes in the train, I would just look at the window, see the nature passing by, and I just the idea started forming of, why not just walk it, you know? Grab a backpack or something and just walk it. Wouldn't that be nice? But it was still like a very hypothetical thought, right? It's just an idea. It's completely different actually realizing it. But then as I grew a bit older and until recently... I had the opportunity of doing it because I had two months, let's say, between jobs. And the idea came again in the form of a fantasy. But I realized, well, why not doing it? You know, I could literally just grab a backpack, start walking. And there's really nothing for preventing me from doing so. So, so yeah, let, let's do it. And that's that's kind of the, the gist of it, I think. I love how this happened, you know, the kind of long, kind of wistful thinking about it, then just it just everything's come together and doing it. Now, is this route walking, you know, the length of Portugal? I know parts of it, but is it common, you know, among Portuguese to know that this is a walk or were you kind of just like stringing together different routes to make it happen? Oh, no. I mean, as far as I know, I, I didn't find any information on specifically Portuguese people having done this this journey, nor or foreign people. So the route that I took was a lot of improvisation. But I do know that the place from where I started, which is the southwest corner of Portugal, is called Cape St. Vincent. And it used to be a pilgrimage uh, site there as well. So people used to, to do routes up to there. And from there, all the way to Santiago in the north of Spain, right? So in order to go to Santiago, people back in the day, the, the pilgrims that went, went to, to Santiago for the religious reasons, obviously, had to walk. You know, centuries ago, you couldn't obviously take a car or even horses could be expensive, etc. So people would walk. And there is some uh, old routes which indicate that people used to do these kind of walks, probably rarely, for religious reasons. Now, in modernity, in the times, uh, in the current times, I did not find anyone that did the exact route that I, uh, that I took. What I did was combine a lot of routes that I were, was aware existed. And then I did a lot of improvisation so there were a lot of times that small pieces of the route were probably a bit sketchy. You know, I was looking up uh, uh, trailing apps. I was using Google Maps. Then when I didn't have battery, I kind of just used my instinct. 
And since I was going via the coast, I just knew where the ocean was. And I kind of like played with, with what I could. And then other parts of the route were actually marked, which was really nice. And that was the, the first step of the journey. So I began in an, let's say, marked, well-known route. And that really helped me to kind of understand how, do, how, how one hikes in this kind of way, multi-day hiking. How do I feel regarding possible different routes, etc.? And then a bit of more improvisation came. And then I started connecting other routes. And a lot of times I, I got a bit lost or anyway, I had to improvise a lot. <laughs> let's say that, yeah. Uh, that's fun. You know, you know, everything in life is, it's becoming more and more scripted. I've done some of the big GRs where, you know, every kind of 200 meters, there's a little paint flash and you still get, still get lost, but um, to kind of just go out and just kind of make your own way sounds, uh, sounds really inspirational. Um, your route, you started in the Southwest corner. Did you just go up the coast the entire way or, or kind of what were some of the landmarks along your uh, 35 day journey that people might recognize? Landmarks, yeah. So I began there, and I did the Vincentino route uh, until its end, which is in Porto Covo near Sines. It's one of the biggest. It's the main port in the southwest coast. Then from Sines all the way to Lisbon, there were really no routes that I could find. So from there, it was all improvisation. I guess Sines was the main city up until getting close to to Lisbon, and I just kept walking. And I remember there, it was a bit tricky to find routes sometimes. I was walking sometimes close to, to the ocean, close to dunes. Then I had to walk on the actual tar, uh, so the road with vehicles, which for me is definitely the, the worst one. Uh, it's the least attractive. And, and I just felt that the boredom and the fatigue way more versus when I was in beautiful places. And this was a pattern throughout the journey. So I guess the, the next landmark there would be, depending how well you know Portugal, a beautiful place called Sesimbra. So I, I walked from Sines all the way to the tip of Troia. And then between uh, from Troia to Sesimbra, there's a small uh, bay, let's say. And I, I took the ferry there in order to, to, to go to the other place. And something that I really liked, first of all, the, the ferry was free, which I think is really cool. Um, <laughs> it's really nice, like to stimulate travel there or something. And then Sesimbra is probably the next landmark. And it's one of the most beautiful places that I know of in Portugal. And I guess I know it fairly well at this point. Um, it's got a beautiful castle and it's got these amazing beaches. The region is very famous within the, the Portuguese uh, famous places. And then from there, I walked up to the Tejo River and then I crossed to Lisbon. So the capital there would be the, the next huge uh, landmark. How many days was it to get to Lisbon? Uh, that's a good question. I actually have my notebook here. <laughs> so I, I carried this little notebook here. I drew my own maps. It's yeah, it's really bad drawings, but uh, it gave me an idea of the progress that I was doing. So I would write down, okay, day one from Sagres to Vila do Bispo, from this town to the other one, day two the same. Then I would write down my, my budget and stuff just to kind of keep track. And I arrived in Lisbon, according to this, uh, on the... 18th. So it took me 18 days to get from the southwest coast of Portugal to Lisbon. Um, and when I started, I, I, I had no idea how long I was going to take. So <laughs> I think that that's great. It, it's yeah, it's like, I don't even know what the route is going to be. Uh, so we'll have to figure it out as we go along. You had two months, I guess. So you knew that you could make it in two months. And exactly. Yeah, I could estimate like, based on uh, one of the things that I did was look at Santiago routes. So there's a lot of routes that lead to Santiago. And one of them, one of the 
probably maybe the most famous one, I'm not sure, lives from the border between France and Spain, if that's correct. And I, I noticed that the length is similar roughly to the length that I was gonna uh, that I was planning on on doing by by foot. So I had an idea roughly how long it would take. It was doable. Um, and yeah, I think the, the main thing that, that I had on my side was, as you said, I had two months. So I had a, a bit of wiggle room, you know? I wasn't like, okay, I have to go fast or something like that or, <laughs> or, or, or too slow. And that really helped me mentally because, you know, doing this faster than I did, it was already such a challenge. So <laughs> I can imagine it would be draining both psychologically and, and physically, of course. Yeah, no, I, I think it's hard when you hear people, they do, you know, these massive, you know, trips, but they have a date. And so they're just pushing themselves and they can't slow down. I think you lose something. It's still a great trip. But when you have just that little bit more freedom to listen to your body and, you know, maybe take a break and enjoy a place you fall in love with, uh, that's just really nice. I mean, absolutely, Richard. I, I agree with you completely. And I, I would even say it's two different modes of traveling. So not just in the hiking world, but generally when you're traveling. And if you have, let's say... You're traveling to a country, you go to Thailand and you have one week there, then you have one week in Vietnam and you have this X amount of days in each city. You have you want to see these kind of things. So you're, you have to optimize your time. And that's always in the back of your mind, even in your subconscious. So you're, it's part of the experience itself, time, right? While if you, I don't know, if you have plenty of time, let's say if you have a month in Vietnam, of course, that would be a huge privilege. Um, then you can... You don't have to take time into consideration when you're looking at stuff. So you can spend more time in this location or with these people or in this activity based on how you feel at the moment. You know what I mean? And I just, I think it's a very different type of of experience doing both of these things. And I'm mentioning this because I did Vietnam, not not by foot. I also did the, the length. That was by motorbike, but it's a, it's a, it's a different story and definitely a, an easier one, I must say. I love how you express that. There is something just having the freedom where you don't know what's going to happen, where you just know I've got four weeks or six weeks or 12 weeks. I got to be somewhere then. And your journey takes these, you know, unique, unique turns where all of a sudden you find you end up in a different country or in a different part from what you thought just because you you hear something or you find something. Um, let, let's get back to the trip. So you're in Lisbon and then you're going north. What are some of the landmarks? Did, did you, you know, I, I think at one point you followed part of the um, uh, the Camino to a route to San Diego, didn't you? Yes, yes, I did. So when I, my thing was, okay, so for, I knew that from the southwest corner up to Sinis, there was the marked route from Sinis to Lisbon was mostly improvisation. It was very beautiful there, but, you know, I had to improvise. I had to try to understand it. There was a lot of uncertainty, but it ended up going well. Then from Lisbon, I knew that there was still today people that did the Santiago route. It's very uncommon. Most people live from Porto, so in the north of the country, and go to Santiago, which again is in the north of Spain. But I knew some people uh, went from Lisbon to Santiago. I also knew that other people, um, many people actually, go from Lisbon to Fatima. Fatima is a pilgrimage site in Portugal, which is very famous, and a lot of people walk there. The thing was that I was doing this trip, and in my mind, I wanted to go through the most beautiful places. And for me, by default, the most beautiful places are the ones with the most nature. And the Santiago route from Lisbon to Santiago itself was going through the interior of Portugal. So the official route, there's a, it's actually marked, etc. I think few people do it. But I looked at, at the route in Google Maps and, and I researched a bit about it. And there was a lot of tar walking. So a lot of walking in the roads, a lot of walking with the vehicles. The landscape didn't seem amazing. I looked up some reviews of people that did it. And it just it didn't drew me as much as going 
through a, a place that I'm sure it's going to be beautiful because there's nothing you can do to the ocean. Like as long as I, if I look to the ocean, there's that beauty there. So for me, I decided to go uh, via the coast, which, you know, it's it's got the improvisation, the ambiguity, which I guess I also like, and and the beauty of it, as you can see via the, the, the video. Even some people told me, okay, that route looks better than the normal route um, from Lisbon to Santiago by the interior. And that's what I that's what I did from Lisbon to Cascais, for example. I was just walking in the, the places where the, the bikes go, like, uh, I, I guess the cycling uh, route or something like that. And then from there, I took a lot of different places through very steep hills. Uh, I ran out of water one time, like it was very much improvisation, but I was using a lot the All Trails app or the Wikiloc app, these apps where people um, share the routes they're doing in short hikes, in motorcycle hikes, horse uh, kind of paths as well. So I ended up, I guess, choosing the improvisation path once again. I, I love how you're just, you know, finding your own route and not knowing what's around the corner necessarily. What did you carry in your pack? I know you mostly camped, but, you know, how much gear did you have? So for me, this was pretty much my first true hiking experience. I don't know much about gear, etc. But from what I researched and what I talked with people, everybody told me the same or the conclusion was simple. Carry as least as possible because the weight of the backpack is going to, you know, take a toll on you physically and then mentally. Um, so I took a, a backpack uh, that my, uh, it belongs to my father. He lent it to me. And that's also a good point. My father did parts of the Vicentina route. And he did a piece of the Santiago route, leaving from a place in the north of Spain. So that, that was also part of, he gave me really good advice. And it also kind of motivates you to have someone close to you that did, you know, these kind of small pieces of hiking. And yeah, so he lent me his backpack, which is a really good backpack, I think, for my standards at least. And I carried around 10 kilos in my backpack without water or food. And then, of course, there was this trade-off of how much water do I carry versus the kilos that I feel once I put the, the water bottle in the backpack. And I remember this daily uh, debate that I had in my mind. Okay, maybe I'm going to run out of water. Is there coffee shops in this route? How long it's going to take? And then I put, if I put like two water bottles in, in the backpack, uh, one liter and a half each, that's three kilos and you definitely feel it. So there was this kind of debate. Now, in terms of the things that I took, I took... The, the basic camping stuff. So uh, a tent, which uh, uh, it's supposed to be a, a light tent, but it still takes a lot of room. Of course, the sleeping bag. I had the inflatable mattress, the inflatable pillow. I had some changes of, of clothing, like three, three changes, I think. Uh, a hoodie and a jacket for, for when it got cold. Then I carried some uh, swimsuit. I was lucky enough to swim a, a lot, to use a lot of the ocean since I was doing the, the coastline. I had... Um, these kind of flip-flop things, which were, you know, they felt like heaven after walking so long, <laughs> taking off the, the hiking shoes. That was a really uh, good tip from my father as well, I believe, and research. Then I took some basic utensils, such as a, a head torch for at night. It's crucial. It's really good stuff that I learned from camping. Um, also in Australia, I camped there for a while and we, we were working there, so the head torch was very useful there. Absolutely indispensable for me. Uh, of course, I had the, my phone and the charger. I had a small thing that I bought online for 11 euros, like a phone support in order to film, which lasted about half the trip and then it broke. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
but uh, I was able to still improvise and achieve the, the filming. And then some basic stuff like sunscreen. I had a notepad that I, I'm showing to you right now where I wrote down the things of the trip. Um, might be forgetting some stuff. I, I didn't uh, bring any cooking material or anything like that. For cooking and eating, would you just stop in cafes or were you just eating cold food the entire time? Yeah, so I must admit that even in my own place, I tend not to cook so much. I'm a, one of those guys, just very practical stuff that I buy and I eat almost immediately. So it wasn't hard for me. And no, I, I never cooked. I considered taking a, one of those small uh, camping oven things or what, what do you call it, you know? But it was just there was not enough room. And, and I, I said, like, it, it's not worth it. My point was to make at least a coffee in the morning. Then I could heat up some noodles. But I decided not to. Then there's also the component of the fires in Portugal, which is a really big problem uh, and certainly was this last summer. So there's also that component there. And I ended up just eating what I would buy or acquire either at a coffee shop or at a small, tiny supermarket. I guess you just call it a market in villages in the beginning. So my diet consists mostly of a big loaf of bread, which is cheap. I love and it's huge. You know, you can carry it and fills you up. Um, normally some butter as well, which is very caloric and, and has salt as well, which is very important with dehydration. And it just tastes good and it's simple. So those two things I didn't need to cook. Then I would add in normally like um, if I could uh, a can of tuna for some protein. And a lot of what I did was uh, drink milk. For me, milk is like the super survival food because it hydrates, it's got calories, it's got protein. And then when I would stop at the coffee shops, in the beginning, I was being super cheap, like counting all the cents. But then by the end, I was just so tired. I would just eat the most caloric cake I could find. <laughs> and believe me, like in Portugal, you probably know there's a lot of these heavy calorie, heavy sugar cakes that I would eat with such joy. And just sit down, charge the phone, talk with the old lady of the cafe, because normally it was like remote areas, watch the, the news and, um, and then kept going. And always have coffee. I'm definitely addicted to caffeine. And if I would walk the day until, you know, walking from 7 a.m. until 3 p.m. without the coffee, I would feel it. And I definitely learned that I have a caffeine addiction. <laughs> and, and would you find a cafe or a little market every day? Or were there some days where you went without? Yeah, I'm sure I did find a cafe every day or some sort of supply thing. Why, why do I know this? So the first part of the journey, the Vicentino route, is, the, play, is the, the region with the lowest population density of the country, right? And it's a marked route. So it's normally between 20 to 30 kilometers pieces of route, let's say, daily journeys. And it's official, and you can even find signs which say the route, is it difficult or not, is it steep? And always says, like, you, you're going to find one or two places to, to, to get your supplies. Because if there were no supplies between one of the pieces of the route, I don't think they would make it part of an official route, if, if you know what I mean. Of course, yeah, and in, in those areas, it was the piece of the journey that I took where there was the, the, the least amount of coffee shops or the least amount of uh, small markets and stuff. So, uh, you know, I would walk the whole day and I was walking in a direction where almost any, no one else was walking. So my only interaction of the day was when I found this small village with the little coffee shop and I would ask the lady... Uh, hey, how are you? How much is the coffee? Blah, blah, blah. And that was pretty much it. So I was always able to find something. But there were some parts of the journey where I um, could have had more food for a while. And then I ran out because I wasn't 
calculated correctly or with the water as well. And then when, as I got more and more north, that was just all the time you can find it. And also because, again, I was going through the coastline, which means there was a lot of there's a lot of uh, beaches in, in Portugal, a lot of public beaches. And sometimes I would have to get my supplies in the beach cafes or bars, which are definitely overpriced for my standards. But <laughs> they were delightful at the time because uh, I could get my coffee or my water. Um, and that was it. And then the further I went north, I, there was no problem finding supplies. Yeah. And then you camped most of the time. Were you just, you know, finding a place and pitching your tent kind of anywhere? Or were you staying in registered campgrounds? Yeah, so it was definitely a lot of improvisation. And this is this was one of the variables that I was most uh, uncertain about. Like, I didn't know if it was going to be easy or not to find a place to camp, to put the tent in. So my logic was, I'll take the tent. If I can find a good spot, I'll use it. If not, I'll just try to find a hostel or something. And fairly, to my surprise somewhat... There was almost always places to camp. One of the things that I think was was on my side is that I took a lot of time to find a good camping spot. So at least two hours before sunset, my mind was like, okay, I don't need to walk any more kilometers. I'm going to start looking for a spot where I feel comfortable in. Now, what does that mean? There's pretty much two main things, I, I would say, to find a camping spot. The first one is you can't camp in natural reserves because obviously you can't and you don't want to. It's like, if you like to hike and you like nature, you definitely don't want to be in those places where you're going to harm or at least, you know, you wouldn't feel well being in those places. So that's the one that you can't do. The other one is private property, obviously. And those are the only two options. It's either a natural reserve or private property. So it can belong to an individual, an organization or to the state. And what I found as I was walking through the coast is that Normally, you have the, the ocean, you have the beach itself. Some people camp in the beach. I never did. And I'm not sure. It's just something that I didn't feel drawn to. It feels too out in the open. Then you have the sand and also you have the currents. You know, it can be dangerous as well. And right after the ocean, sometimes you had the, the, the wild reserve. Sometimes you didn't. And then if you go a little bit more to the interior, you don't immediately get the normal farmlands. You don't get the, the cattle or you don't get the corn, whatever it is. There's normally a piece of land which is not really good for farming because it's still too sandy, let's say, at least in this region that I was walking. And what you had normally there was uh, pine trees or eucalyptus trees. So these normally belong to someone. These people make um, some money with it, but it's not fenced. There's not, they don't need to do anything. You know, They just get the subsidy from the state or they produce the pines or the eucalyptus, etc. And that's overwhelmingly where I camped. So in conclusion, I was definitely camping somewhere that belonged to someone, I assume, but I made the best not to leave any marks to make sure it was absolutely fine for my side. And it ended up going very well. And I, I did camp in some beautiful places, but I also camped in some places that were definitely a bit more to the sketchy side or, or, or not so good. And I did camp in an official camping site as well on the fourth day, which I remember very well. And it was very nice um, to take a, a warm shower as well and this kind of stuff. And then I had a couple of... of Hostels, of course, um, because once it got too much of urban areas, there's literally no place to to camp. There's no point. There's just cities, and and I took the hostels there, which was also nice experiences. Talk with people again for like a longer conversation than <laughs> can I have a coffee, please? And you didn't do a ton of like special training for this route, uh, although you are really active. How did your body react 
to walking every day? Did it kind of fall into it really easily or did you deal with aches and pains like the rest of us? Oh, definitely. It was very painful. <laughs> In the beginning, it was definitely painful. So I did research a little bit regarding this kind of, of, of hiking and people on, online, they, they did say one should try to, uh, to practice somewhat. And what I did is I just... Uh, walked a little bit, no more than 10 kilometers around the city. So if I had to do something, I would just walk there. At the time I was in Berlin. So let's say I had to do something from work to the gym, blah, blah, blah. And if I could, I would just walk with my running shoes. So that was pretty much the preparation. But indeed, I must say that I do a lot of sports. I, it's just something that I love, which include the climbing, jujitsu and, and yoga. And they, those definitely really help. I also used to run a fair bit. The most I ran, ran was a half marathon, which I completely improvised as well, but uh, I wasn't running that much. But I guess the combination of these sports kind of help you out. Then I did a little bit of practice, but I definitely did not go as prepared as I could. I remember second day feeling the pain in the feet particularly, like very intense pain. And then on day four, I was in so much pain that I was wondering, okay, maybe there's something wrong with my feet. Uh, maybe it's just going to keep getting worse. Will I have to cancel the trip? You know, like this kind of, of thinking because you don't know. And I, I, I didn't know if it was normal to have that kind of pain. It was up to a point where I had to take my, my shoes. I was walking with my running shoes, which are very light and very comfortable. And I had to take them off. And since it was a very sandy path, right in the beginning, pretty much, and sometimes the beach, I would walk barefoot in the hopes that that would help, you know, like format the skin of the feet and the, the tendons and the muscles and etc. And that helped for a while. But then the pain was so much that I couldn't walk barefoot and I couldn't walk with the shoes. So I was trying to find this middle path. And then I was putting the shoes in um, the feet in, inside the shoes without tying them up. And that was like the ideal minimal pain that I could find for a while. Um, so I definitely felt the feet. And I remember very well that time being the most intense part in terms of physical pain of the journey and I did recur to what some people call online as the Santiago candy which is ibuprofen like the the thing you can get at the at the pharmacy it's similar to paracetamol so this uh, low end uh, painkiller thing that helps with the muscle soreness and back pains and stuff that people take normally so I took that one for uh, to help out I didn't feel the difference normally I'm not a, a big fan of those things but psychologically it did help feeling that I was doing something. And then, eh, I don't know, maybe day five and six, the, the feet kind of starting to adjust, the pain started to become manageable. And that gave me like this psychological uh, lift, let's say. I was like, okay, this is not going to go all the way down and I'm not going to have to stop the trip. This is part of the journey. And, the, and definitely there was that. So I would say the main thing was the feet. My body was not ready for it at all. In terms of cardio, there was never any problem. Also because, you know, the heart, heart rate didn't really go up. Only sometimes when it was really uh, steep and one had to go up, but nothing compared to, let's say, how the cardio goes in jiu-jitsu, let's say. And then the other component that I say my body wasn't used to it was the knees. Like there's something about that constant walking, all those steps in such a monotony with the backpack that it caused some pain, it caused some discomfort. And I, I did something which is definitely very silly, uh, but I think it helped. There's this guy on, on the internet, you might have heard of him, the knees over toes guy. He's this guy that became very famous um, from showing 
good exercises for the knees. A lot of people have knee problems. He used to be a basketball player, had a couple of surgeries, didn't go well. And then he started researching and he found these exercises that completely changed him. And now he can dunk again and etc. you know, like this kind of beautiful journey. And he shares a lot of this information in several different podcasts. And it's actually valuable. I checked on Google Scholar. Uh, these kind of exercises can help. One of the main exercises is to walk backwards. So what does this mean? Sometimes when it was really, really steep in the root, I would literally turn my uh, turn around and I would walk for a while backwards, going in a steep way. So I was exercising the tendons or muscles or whatever it is of the knees in that way. And what this did is I really think it helped in a noticeable way and it absolutely helped in a psychological way. Again, feeling like you're doing something to mitigate the pain or to help your body feels good by itself, by the behavior itself. So, so yeah. Feet and, and, and knees, definitely. Now, now, you mentioned the hills. How hilly is this route? Like, uh, is it is it are hills kind of a constant every day, or is it a fairly flat route overall? I would say it varies quite a lot. It, it really does vary quite a lot. Some days, just no hills, just completely, or sometimes I just went through the beach, which is a, a whole different kind of terrain itself because your feet really go down and it's tiring the calves. Um, but in terms of hills... Sometimes there, there was some, some hills in nature which were, again, I mean, Portugal, you don't get these very high mountains, nothing outstanding, but up and down and up and down and maybe, you know, one hour going up and, and down of this kind of hill, uh, steep hill locations, definitely near Sesimbra, absolutely near Cascais. Uh, I did have those kind of, uh, and in those areas, it's all very, very small trails in the middle of the bushes. Uh, so there was this up and down a lot, but those areas were were also some of the most beautiful. And again, it really the beautiful part of it really helped with the fatigue. It really helped with the um, the physical and the, and the mental difficulties. So I, I would say that there is this interesting relation. Normally, when it was the steepest and there was this kind of hills, it was also very beautiful places. So it kind of, uh, you know, evens out, let's say. Um, and yeah, and then there were some parts where it was just road, the tar. That was definitely the most boring and for me some of the most difficult. And also there's the issue of safety when, you know, when there's cars nearby you. There's also that issue there. Um, so yeah, I would say in the, in the Vicentino route, there was a, a, some parts it was really steep going up and down. One has to be careful. And then Sesimbra and Cascais were probably the places with the steepest uh, hills. Going further north, if my memory doesn't fail me, there's there's always some stuff. And I think it's also part of the Portuguese coastline itself. So it's normal that there's cliffs everywhere. And those cliffs do have some, some inclinations, let's say. But generally speaking, I would say it's varied. But Richard, please take into account, this is my first uh, hike and multi-day hike. So I don't know how the rest of the world is. Often the coastline, you know, people think, oh, you never go above, you know, 100 or 200 meters above sea level. But a lot of coastlines, you're kind of going up really steep and then down really steep and up really steep. And so sometimes, you know, coastal walks, you know, I know the southwest coast path in uh, in England, it's actually a really challenging path because you're either going uphill or downhill. You're kind of never, never walking straight except for the very bottom or the very top. Uh, you did it your first walk with with a bit of pain. You managed to walk 800 kilometers. So uh, it, it is doable. Uh, that leads me to my last question, which is like, what like what is your best memory of this trip? Like when you just think back of, you know, this these 35 days, is there one memory that, that comes that's kind of like the highlight for you? 
someone asked me that question before and there, there weren't a lot of memories as in something dramatic or sudden happened during the trip. There was, you know, small things because the monotony was, but maybe the monotony is not the correct word, but it was just like this one feet in front of the other, one feet in front of the other, the landscape slowly changing, more beautiful, less beautiful, more cars, less cars, different routes, etc. Things that changed was like, you know, for me, really small things made a mark. I saw a huge snake once that was like a highlight of the day, like <laughs> an emotion I wasn't experienced. Um, then I met uh, different people. That's always part of it. Uh, when I was in the southwest coast, I was looking at the map of the route, and I noticed someone looking as well. And this individual really looked like a hiker as well. You know, like a big backpack. He had a huge beard and, and this kind of cane and the, the round hat. I was like, hey man, where, where are you from? Where are you walking? Oh, I'm trying to get to Lisbon. I'm like, no way, I'm going as well. Anyway, we talked for a while, and it marked me because he was walking all the way from Barcelona via the coastline all the way to Lisbon. Oh, wow. Well, yeah, that's really crazy. I was like, oh, man, that's insane. Like, why are you doing it? Blah, blah. And this guy, he just told me, oh, you know, sometimes you need to think about life. And I was in Barcelona. Now I went to work in the Netherlands and I decided to walk. Uh, so it was a small conversation, but it definitely marked me. It makes you realize it doesn't matter what you're doing or what you're aware of other people doing. There's so many people doing so much amazing stuff that we have no idea about. Because, you know, this guy, I don't think he was recording. I'm don't know if he shared with many people and who knows what other people are doing so that that moment i remember marking me and just leaving me with a smile on my face also humbles you you know whatever you're doing there's someone doing something way harder for sure <laughs> and it's nice to think of this plurality of people doing cool stuff and then yeah regarding people i remember meeting also a german lady that was working from peniche which is not that further north from lisbon all the way to porto which is also a lot of walking and she didn't carry a tent. She carried a special sleeping bag or something. So there was no... She was camping and there, she didn't have a tent. There was no protection from rain, which for me is uh, obviously outstanding. Um, so, yeah, I would say the animals I saw, the people that I saw, some owls, some some cool birds of prey, some particularly extraordinarily cliffs and locations that just, like, give you this awe moment, you know? But regarding the a pinpoint memory that maybe you're... Uh, looking for i can tell you one which it's not a specific event but anyway so i was walking the whole country right and i also took a, a book with me and this book was the concise history of portugal and as i started reading the book i was down south and as this the the kilometers moved the, the days moved the centuries moved as well and as i was getting closer north i was always following the coastline and i was seeing this pattern in the small villages you see more statues dedicated to the unknown fishermen and, and, and women than you do see to, to kings or politicians. It's mostly really uh, the unknown fishermen of the village, so a statue representing the, the struggle that they had, and poets, and that, that's pretty much the pattern. And I just remember feeling uh, this idea of the struggle and how difficult life was in the past versus today, where, you know, I don't we don't struggle for food in Portugal. Statistically, there's not such a thing, but it, people used to struggle a lot and the fishermen specifically in the coastline, and they used to do so without recognition. So, and I, don't know, I don't know, I remember reading the history and feeling this kind of constant idea of how difficult, of difficult things were um, in Portugal, which also meant in the world, because, you know, back in the day, there weren't, uh, the, the struggle for survival was really everywhere, right? And But anyway, the, the specific memory, I was walking, I was getting, I believe... A bit uh, after Porto, 
and uh, and I was walking this beautiful beach. There was some small villages and uh, small locations with some houses and, and beach birds. And there was this song playing from Amalia, which is the definitely the most famous musician of Portugal. She sang uh, Fado, which is a, by default a very nostalgic and kind of melancholic or sad style of Portuguese music. And I remember the music playing and all these emotions coming to me of what I was doing, how long I had walked and the, the, the book and the history of Portugal and this kind of thinking of the struggles of the fishermen and of life and how lucky I was and blah, blah, blah. This kind of overwhelming feeling came to me of different thoughts and different emotions of how beautiful life is in general, how it's suffering is part of it and how we don't know of the suffering or, or the happiness of, of most people. It was this kind of almost overwhelming feel, feeling of connection to all of life, let's say. That's the best I can describe it, in the good and in the bad side. And at the time, tears kind of came to my eyes, and it was definitely a, a beautiful memory that I will cherish for my life. It's like a culmination of the emotions I was feeling uh, through some times of the trip. I haven't had had anything like that, but I have... You know, you, this is what you get when you're on these long walks is just all of a sudden you'll hear a song or you'll, you know, your minds are, you're, you're free every day. Your mind just kind of wanders and you have these, you know, really powerful moments often by yourself. And it's like, what's going on here? How is this happening? But I think that's what happens just when we kind of disconnect from being on our phones, being in our computer, you know, being around people where things always go, go, go. We have the ability just to let our mind, you know, think and think these, you know, incredible thoughts and uh, these powerful thoughts, which uh, I think that's incredible. You know, your your first, you know, big walk, you had this like period of transcendence, it sounds like. It's uh, it's it's super cool. Um, I guess now I have one more question. Are you going to do another walk now? You know, it sounds like, you know, you had some great experiences. Are you thinking of another one now? It's hard for me not to have these kind of fantasy ideas. Like I used to have them. I think I'll still have them. But I can't say I have anything planned specifically, but I'm open to it. Like, you know, Let's say there's another time period that I have free for X amount of time. Why not, you know, walk some other country or something like that in a beautiful place? There's nothing preventing me from doing so now or in the future. You know, people that walk the Santiago way older than me, you know, it's always there for us. It's beautiful. It's mostly free. But I can't say I have something specific right now, Richard. I just have some ideas. We'll, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, if you want to get a, a, a visual dose of inspiration, uh, Tomas has put a video of his walk on YouTube and it is like, Portugal is like one of these underrated destinations. People don't realize how beautiful it is, especially the coast. So I'm going to put a link of that in the show notes because uh, that gave me wanderlust and I'm sure it'll give a lot of other people. Uh, and Tomas, thanks for coming on the podcast and sharing, you know, your trip. It is super, uh, super cool to hear about just kind of your approach of trying to do something different and then just your experiences. And uh, I know I've really enjoyed hearing your story. Oh, thank you so much, Richard. It's been super fun to, to be invited here. I'm honored and, and yeah, it was, it was nice. Thank you. Excellent. And with that, thanks everyone for listening to this episode. We'll be back next week to explore the world and hear about more epic adventures on the 10 Adventures podcast. Listen to other episodes of the 10 Adventures podcast on Amazon Music at amazon.com slash 10adventures.